Okay, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet together, to fellowship together, and to hear your word, Father. And I pray that we would not just hear your word this morning, but that we would be changed by it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears um, to hear what you have to say to the church this morning. And I pray that you would give us fertile soil in our hearts to, to receive your word, that it might take root and produce a harvest in us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly through me today um, and that your gospel um, would be pronounced clearly this morning, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. It's good, as always, to be with you. Um, if you would continue to pray for Pastor Mark and Ginger, they just dropped Jason off in Idaho, and they'll be traveling this week, and so they'll be back next Sunday. Um, but uh, if you would pray for them, if you would think of that, um, I know that would be a blessing to them and encouragement to them. So before we jump into our text here, I have just um, just a few questions. Um, how many of you here are coffee drinkers? Um, show of hands. Okay, a lot of you, most of you. So for those of you who aren't, these questions don't apply to you. Um, but for my coffee drinkers, how many of you uh, enjoy a nice hot cup of coffee? Show of hands. Okay, most of you. Um, how many of you enjoy um, a, a nice cold brew or an iced coffee? Quite a few of you. How many of you love a nice giant cup of lukewarm coffee? Anyone? Okay, we got one, we got one person maybe, one or two. Not that many. Okay, I was just curious. So 
After a, after a week break last week, we're going to finish today our series um, on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These were, as we've said, seven first century churches found in seven cities in the Roman province of Asia, which would be modern day Turkey. And today, we're going to look at the letter to the church in Laodicea, who are best known as the church that Jesus calls lukewarm. And in case you were wondering, that's not something that you want to be known for. Now, it's important to know that Laodicea was a very wealthy city, so much so that when there was a devastating earthquake in the city in about A.D. 17, uh, the, the city refused any imperial help, any imperial aid, and instead they chose to rebuild the city on their own. They were, they were wealthy, they were self-sufficient, and they didn't want or need anyone's help. That's going to be important to remember. So Jesus begins his letter to the church in Laodicea by identifying himself with three different titles in verse 14. Jesus calls himself the Amen, the Faithful and True Witness, and the Beginning of God's Creation. So three different titles, but Jesus, I believe, is making a very clear point to the church with these three titles. He first calls himself the Amen. And Amen simply means, let it be so. Right? So, so when we pray, and we finish our prayers, we, we typically say, in Jesus' name, Amen. In Jesus' name, let it be so. So the Amen means that Jesus is the confirmation and the fulfillment of everything that God has promised in his word. The promise of Messiah, the promise of reconciliation of heaven and earth, God and man, the promise of justification, the promise of adoption, the promise of being the covenant people of God, every promise is fulfilled in and through Jesus, the Amen. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him, through Christ, that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So Jesus is the Amen. Jesus also refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. Now each one of us as believers are called to be faithful witnesses to the Lord. So we read Acts chapter 1 and Jesus says to his disciples, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Right? But Jesus is the ultimate, completely faithful, and completely true witness to the reality of God and the truth of His Word. And Jesus is the faithful and true witness, not just to the person and work of God, but also to the true state of the churches. 
So in other words, Jesus confirms who God says he is and also who God says we are. And finally, Jesus calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is the first thing that God created, right? This is not supporting some kind of Arian heresy. We need to be very clear on that. If Jesus was created, then he is by definition not God. But we read in the scriptures, John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case there's any question about who the Word is, John writes a few verses later, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring, of course, to Jesus. So when Jesus says that he is the beginning of God's creation, what he means is that he is the beginner of God's creation. He is the one responsible for God's creation, and therefore he is the rightful ruler of creation. So you'll see that in, in some of the translations, the biblical translations, it will, it will refer to the ruler of creation in this passage. So, as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, as the ruler of creation, Jesus is in the absolute unique position of having both the authority and the ability to correctly judge the true state of his church. No one else has the authority or the ability to do that, but Jesus does. And as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, as the Lord and ruler of creation, this is what he has to say about the church in Laodicea. Verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus knows their works. Jesus knows our works. He knows my works. He knows your works. And and Jesus knows not just our outward works, but he knows the motivation behind our works. Jesus knows the state of our hearts from which our works flow. And as the scriptures make absolutely clear, nothing can be hidden from the eyes of the Lord, but everything will be brought into the light. Now, it's not always difficult to deceive the people around you concerning your sin, right? I think of, I was thinking about that this week, and and I thought of the story of Ravi Zacharias. Um, And I'm sure uh, at least some of you are familiar with who that was. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Ravi Zacharias um, was was probably, I, I would say, um, the the most well known, most respected Christian apologist in in our time, at least. Um, 
And and, uh, for those of you that don't know what uh, apologetics is, that simply means a defense of the Christian faith. And so Ravi Zacharias had this seemingly very Christ-centered, very successful, very fruitful ministry that reached all over the world and, and literally affected millions of people. And after he died last year, he died of cancer last year, and after he died, it, it came out then that for years and years he was engaged in sexual sin and, and sexual abuse towards multiple women. Right? This was not a one-time thing. This had been going on for years and years and years without any repentance. And when this came out, it was absolutely heartbreaking and shocking to the Christian community. Nobody had any inkling, any idea that this was going on. And we've seen this not just with Ravi Zacharias, but with other Christians time and time again. But what what I want you to understand is that not for one second was Jesus deceived about what was going on. Jesus knows and Jesus sees his word Hebrew said his his word is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart it's Hebrews 4:12 the very next verse verse 13 says all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account So Jesus knows not only the works, but Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of the church in Laodicea. And his conclusion is that they are neither hot nor cold, but that they are lukewarm. Now, to understand what it means to be lukewarm, we first of all need to get rid of our our modern terminology and our modern conception of being spiritually hot or spiritually cold. Where where hot would be a good thing and cold would be a bad thing, right? So so today or or certainly at least in the 90s when I was a kid growing up, we would we would refer to people as spiritually hot. We would you know we would say things like, oh man, you know Keegan he's on fire for the Lord. Sherman he's on fire for Jesus, and that was that was considered a good thing, right? Uh, we we would never say, man, I want to be ice cold for Jesus, right? That would tend to carry a negative connotation with it. And so uh, with with that idea then, then lukewarm would have to be somewhere in the middle, right? Right? Hot is good, cold is bad, lukewarm is is somewhere in the middle. And so we we might then read this passage and and assume that Jesus is saying that the church in Laodicea are just, you know, they're kind of mediocre Christians. They're not great but they're not terrible either. They're just kind of kind of middle of the road. But that is not what Jesus is saying at all to the church here. In the first century, they wouldn't have used hot and cold to describe being spiritually alive or spiritually dead. That that 
terminology would have been foreign to them. In the first century, uh, both hot and cold water were very useful for different purposes. And so, so hot water would be useful um, for, for heating. It would be useful for warming up. It would be useful for bathing. It would be useful for drinking a hot drink when it was cold. Um, likewise, cold water would be useful for drinking. It would be useful for refreshing yourself when it was hot outside. And so that's why Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. Because both hot and cold water were good and useful, whereas lukewarm water was useless. And so, Jesus is not telling the church that they're spiritually mediocre and that they they just need to pick up their game a little bit and and spend a a few seconds in a spiritual microwave. He's, He's telling them that they are absolutely useless and repugnant to him and that if they don't repent, he will spit them out or vomit them out of his mouth. In the first century... Laodicea was known, despite its wealth, to have a a very poor water supply. Uh, The water nearby the town was was too muddy and too dirty to drink. And so they had to pipe in water from hot springs about five miles away. And by the time it got to the city, it wasn't hot anymore. But it wasn't cold either. It was just lukewarm. And so Jesus is not just randomly using language about hot and cold water, but he's using something from their everyday life to make a point about their spiritual condition. Being hot is good. Being cold is also good. Listen, Jesus would never tell the church that he wished they were cold if cold meant that they were spiritually dead and unregenerate. Being hot is good, being cold is good, being lukewarm is useless, and Jesus will not have it. He will spit them out of his mouth. But what exactly is it that that makes them lukewarm, right? That's the obvious question. What does it mean to be spiritually lukewarm? And Jesus then goes on to answer that in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the Laodiceans' valuation of themselves is completely opposite to what Jesus says about them. Do you notice that? And and this is the point that Jesus is making in the beginning of the letter when he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness and the ruler of creation. Jesus is saying that what matters is not what the church says about themselves, not what the church thinks of themselves, but what matters is who Jesus says that they are. They say Hey, we're, we're rich. We're doing great. We are, you know, we are smooth sailing. We're doing everything right. And Jesus says, no, in fact, you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And here's the key phrase 
to understanding what it means to be lukewarm. The Laodiceans, they think they're rich, they think they're prospering, and they say, I need nothing. I need nothing. Remember, at, at the beginning I said um, the Laodiceans were very, very wealthy. Um, so much so that, that when the earthquake struck, um, they rejected any imperial aid, any imperial help, and they, re-chose, uh, they chose to rebuild the city out of their own means. They were self-sufficient. They were self-dependent, and they did not need help from anyone. And it would seem then that this spirit of self-sufficiency, this spirit of self-dependency had crept into the life of the church. And so to be lukewarm then is to look at your spiritual condition and say, I'm rich and I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm rich on my own. You see, there, there is absolutely no room in the Christian faith for pride and for a spirit of self-sufficiency. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he's, he's telling the church about the, the severe trials that he and his companions have faced and, and have been through. And, and he, he says... He says that these, uh, these, these severe trials were so great, that they were so greatly burdened that they despaired of life itself. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1. But, but here's his conclusion. His conclusion is that these trials were given by the Lord so that they might not depend on themselves, but depend on God who raises the dead. So to be a Christian then is to depend fully and completely on the person and work of Jesus for all of life in every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance. What did Jesus say at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, the very first beatitude, right? Jesus is about to give this this great discourse, Matthew 5 through 7, on what it looks like to be a citizen of this new kingdom that he's inaugurating. And the very first thing he says, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we could, we could preach an entire sermon on what it means to be poor in spirit. But in short, it means to recognize our absolute spiritual bankruptcy and poverty apart from Jesus. And, and notice that the Laodiceans are the exact opposite of poor in spirit. Instead of recognizing their poverty and their desperate need for Jesus, they think that they're spiritually rich and prosperous without Jesus. And Jesus says to them, he says, if you are trusting in your own riches, if you are trusting in your own strength, if you are trusting in your own ability, then you are useless to me. You are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. And, and I want you to see, I think this is really important. Um, when Jesus describes the church in Laodicea 
as, as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Jesus is not talking about Christians who are struggling with sin. Right? How many of you are Christians who struggle with sin? Yeah, and, and myself included, right? Um, Jesus is not referring to, when, when he calls these people wretched, pitiable, p- poor, blind, and naked, he's not addressing Christians struggling with sin. Jesus here is describing people who are unbelievers, who are unregenerate. So to be lukewarm, to be something that Jesus is going to spit out of his mouth, is to be an unbeliever. See, what do the scriptures say about believers? Right? Those who are believers are in Christ. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are counted by the Father as sons and daughters. We are counted by Jesus as brothers and sisters. And so when Jesus is talking about the spiritually wretched, poor, blind, and naked, he's talking about people that do not belong to him. See, Jesus is not going to vomit believers out of his mouth. Right? It, listen, if that were true, then we would have no assurance, we could have no assurance of our salvation, right? And we would have to live constantly in fear that, well, you know, if, if, I, if I slip up a little bit, if, if I slide a little bit, if I get just a little bit too lax in my faith, then Jesus might spit me out. But what do the scriptures say? There's, there's a lot of verses we could read, but John six thirty seven. I love this one. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's good news. The lukewarm that Jesus will spit out are those who do not belong to him. One of my favorite parables uh, in the book of Luke illustrates, I think, perfectly what it looks like to be lukewarm on one hand and what it looks like to be poor in spirit on the other. This is Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is what it says. This is Luke 18, uh, verses 9 through 14. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee, Pharisee is self-sufficient, right? He doesn't need God. In fact, he's wanting to impress God with how righteous he is on his own. He's like, hey God, have, have you noticed how good I am? Have you noticed I'm not like these other guys? You know, I, I tithe everything I get. I fast not just once a week, I fast twice a week. Um, and you should be really, really impressed with me, is basically what he's saying, right? That's what it means, that's what it looks like to be spiritually lukewarm. I'm rich, I don't need anything. But the tax collector recognizes his spiritual poverty, his spiritual brokenness, and he throws himself on the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Right? And which one of them went away justified? It wasn't the hyper-spiritual religious Pharisee, right? It was the hated tax collector who threw himself on the mercy of God. The Laodiceans are lukewarm, and this is what Jesus has to say to them. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you, and it's always good when Jesus counsels you to do something, it's good to listen. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, again, just, just like everything Jesus had to say about the hot and cold and lukewarm water, Jesus is not using the imagery of gold and clothing and eye solve arbitrarily. It's not random. He is intentionally tearing down those things that the Laodiceans most trusted in for their prosperity and their security. See, the, the city of Laodicea was known for its wealth. It's known for its riches. We talked about that. But they were also known for their production of a special type of wool um, that they used to make clothing with. And they were also known for producing a famous eye medication or salve um, that was used to help people see back in the first century. Um, and so I, I don't want you to miss this. The, the city is known for their wealth, their clothing, and their eye medicine. And Jesus looks at them and he calls them poor, naked, and blind. Jesus is exposing their idols. He's exposing their source of security, their source of dependence. And he's saying to them, if, if you want to truly be rich, then you have to come to me. If you want to truly be clothed, you must come to me. If you truly want to be able to see, then you must come to me and buy from me. And as, as Isaiah 55 makes clear, you don't have to have money to come and buy from Jesus. To buy from Jesus is to accept the grace and the mercy that he so 
freely offers. Isaiah 55, 1. Come buy without money and without price. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come and accept my grace. Come and accept my mercy that I offer to you freely without price. But you must come to him like the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus loves his church. And because he loves his church, he will discipline his church, as he says in verse 19. And the goal of his discipline is is not to make us simply miserable, right? I, I hope we understand that Jesus does not discipline us because he's a mean guy or a bully and he just likes watching people suffer, right? Parents, think about why you discipline your children. Hopefully... Hopefully it's because we love them, right? Because we want them to grow. We want them to mature and prosper. We want to point them towards Christ. We discipline them because we love them and we want what's best for them. And what Jesus wants for the Laodicean church is that they would repent that they would turn, that they would stop relying on themselves and instead cry out for his mercy. And in verse 20 then, he has one final exhortation for the church. It's a pretty well-known verse. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Y'all have heard this verse before, right? We're familiar with it, most of us. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, for a lot of years, I I read this verse as if Jesus were running around and begging people to let him into their hearts so that he might be able to save them. Right? Like, you know, like, like he's running around knocking on as many doors as he can. Like he's one of those salesman type people. And he's going to be real bummed if he gets to your door and finds a no solicitor sticker on your door. Right? And, and, and so Jesus is running around knocking on as many doors as he can and, and just hoping that maybe someone will let him in so he can save them. Right? So that's, that's how I would have understood this verse. Um, for a lot of years. But here's the reality from Scripture. And for some of you, this might mess with your theology a little bit. And I think that's a good thing. Um, But here's the truth. Jesus does not need permission to save anyone. Jesus did not need your permission to save you. He did not need my permission to save me. In in John chapter 11, Jesus didn't ask Lazarus for permission to raise him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 1 tells us, Jesus did not need your permission to raise you to new life. Generally speaking, dead people aren't able to give permission, right? So, So Jesus is not knocking on the door hoping that maybe someone will be kind enough to let him in. Jesus is knocking at the door, waiting to find servants who are awake and ready to welcome their master. 
So there's another, there's another parable in Luke which I think illustrates this really well. Luke chapter 12. Um, this is what it says. Listen, listen to this parable in context with the verse that we just read, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them." But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Jesus stands at the door in Knox. And and this is not Jesus pleading with the Laodiceans to please let him in and just give him a chance. This is one final warning that if they do not repent of being lukewarm, if they do not repent of trusting in themselves, of, of trusting in their own strength and riches and ability, he will enter the home and pronounce judgment. He will spit them out and put them with the unfaithful. Now, it's interesting to note um, as we read about this church in, in Laodicea, there's, there's no mention of rampant sexual immorality. There's no mention of pagan worship. And, and most likely, this was a church that was quite religious. And, and I would guess a church that from the outside looked pretty good to people, right? And, and yet, out of all the churches in Revelation that we've studied the last couple of months, this is the one church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. Not one thing. This is a sobering letter. And this is exactly what, what I think much of the church today needs to hear and take heed of. How many churches today are relying on something other than the gospel to attract people and to win people over? How many professing Christians today are trusting in their own strength, their own ability, thinking that they're rich when in fact they're poor, blind, and naked? How many preachers, how many pastors today are telling people exactly what their itching ears want to hear? Telling them that they are rich, that they're prospering, that they need nothing. Instead of, instead of exposing to them their sin and imploring them to fall on the mercy of Jesus. And what about us? Are, are there some of us here, maybe even today, who think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, I think. 
I think I can get by. You know, I, I, yeah, I've got this one area of sin, but but overall, I'm a I'm a pretty good person. I think God's going to be pleased with me and what I'm doing. Are there any of us here today who think we can get by without absolute submission in every aspect of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus? Without daily taking up our cross, following Him, throwing ourselves on His mercy? Are we as a church, are are we hot or cold? Are we poor in spirit? Are we awake? Are we ready to open the door to our master? Verse 21, Jesus closes. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And, and here's, here's the irony that, that those who think themselves rich those who think they need nothing are in fact the poorest of the poor whereas those who like the tax collector know that they're poor who know that they need christ above all else who know that they are nothing and have nothing apart from jesus those are the ones who will be not only be made rich but Jesus says we'll share in his rule on his throne for all of eternity. Wow. And so this morning we have, as, as we always do, we have the opportunity um, to come to the Lord's table. Um, I'm going to ask our helpers if they would come forward. Thank you, guys. Um, and, and as we come to the Lord's table... Every, every week that we do this, it's an opportunity to acknowledge our, our spiritual poverty, but at the same time to acknowledge that through Christ, if we've trusted in Him, we have been made rich, right? It's, it's just like, just like Mephibosheth. You, you guys remember the story of Mephibosheth? Um, and and how King David invited this crippled man uh, of the household of Saul, his enemy, to come and eat at his table with the king for all of his days, right? And so just like Mephibosheth, we as believers, we, we come to the table of the king of kings and and we should recognize that I I don't deserve to be here, and yet through Christ I'm welcomed anyway. And so that's what we have the opportunity to do this morning. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're a believer, if you have placed um, your trust in Jesus, then I invite you to come and partake. If if you um, are not a believer, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you're trusting in your own religion, if you're trusting in the fact that you go to church sometimes and you do this or that sometimes, um, we're going to ask you to refrain from this. This this table is is for believers, but our our prayer for you 
is that you would, you would take these warnings seriously that we heard this morning, that you would repent of sin, that you would turn wholeheartedly to Jesus, that you would fall on his mercy and cry out for his mercy and for his grace, that you would come and buy from him without price, without cost. And so if you're a believer, um, I'm just going to invite you to come and take the elements, go back to your seat, and in a moment we're going to take these together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Father, I I thank you this morning um, that when we were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, you had mercy on us and you saved us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. You saved us through his broken body for his shed blood poured out on us for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you that in Jesus and through Jesus, we are rich and we're clothed and we can see. Thank you for your grace and your mercy so freely given to us. Lord, and I pray for anyone here this morning that hasn't trusted in you as their Lord, as their Savior. Father, would you just do a work in their hearts right now? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you call their name? Would you make them new? And Lord, thank you. Thank you for the promise that all of those who are given to you will never, ever be cast out. We thank you, Lord. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys would put your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to read a benediction over you um, from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be blessed.